Spring is a time of renewal, so why not refresh your home with a little help from Blinds.com? We make getting custom window treatments a minor project with major impact. Choose from premium blinds, shades, and shutters. We even have options for your patio, too. Blinds.com invented a better way to shop for custom window treatments. There's no pushy salespeople in your home or inflated showroom prices. Our design experts can help you find the perfect window treatments on your schedule. We'll even send free samples directly to you. Plus, we can handle the measuring and installation for you. Unlimited window treatments installed for just one low cost. And with Blinds.com, you'll always get transparent pricing. No hidden fees. Our free shipping and 100% satisfaction guarantee can put the spring back into your step. And into your home, too. Shop Blinds.com right now and save up to 45%. Up to 45% off for a limited time at Blinds.com. Blinds.com. Rules and restrictions may apply. Hey, everyone. Jeremy Scheinwald here with another episode of Smart People Should Build Things, the Venture for America podcast. Our podcast is produced by, wait for it, Venture for America a fellowship program for enterprising recent college graduates who launch their careers as entrepreneurs and help revitalize American cities. After five weeks of training, VFA fellows spend two years in the trenches of a startup in an emerging U.S. city where they learn how to contribute to a high-growth business. Afterwards, VFA provides the mentorship, network, and resources fellows need to become entrepreneurs. To learn more about Venture for America, to consider an application even, or to support our work, you can visit ventureforamerica.org. I've been hosting the podcast for getting close to a year now. We're over 40 podcasts deep. Uh, I have a day job as a founder and president of Mission Driven Group, but this podcast is a real passion project for me. I hope you are or are becoming a loyal listener. Please take a moment to like our show on iTunes, and you can now follow me on Twitter at Jeremy Shinewall. Our guest today is Matt Brimer, a Yale graduate who has started a few businesses with past guest Brad Hargraves, and we owe Brad a thanks for connecting us with Matt. Matt started Aloysius, an antique furniture reseller, while a student at Yale. Then he leapt from the past to the future, co-founding Pick Teams Go Cross Campus, a social gaming platform that engaged tens of thousands of college students, all competing against each other. When Pick Teams Go Cross Campus wrapped, Matt launched General Assembly, which was initially a co-working space, but also brought forth an era of alternative skill development and private courses that basically rang in the era of coding classes, tech career transitions, and inexpensive tech startups. I'm almost exhausted reading this, but Matt has a wellspring of energy. In his spare time, he launched Daybreaker, a morning movement that has turned into an early evening movement as well. Think inclusive rave, where the alcohol and other substances substances are replaced by juice, yoga, and dancing. Um, I'm really looking forward to this interview. Uh, We welcome Matt Brimer to the podcast. Welcome to Smart People Should Build Things, the Venture for America podcast. Building things can be really hard, and entrepreneurship is often portrayed in the media as the sexy, or even worse, easy career path. Through this series, we plan to pull back the curtain and tell the gritty stories of entrepreneurship. We're striving to create a relaxed environment where entrepreneurs feel free to tell their stories. This is Smart People Should Build Things, the Venture for America podcast. All right, Matt, so thanks so much for, uh, for being here. Absolutely, good to be here. Uh, so we, we talked uh, with your uh, your collaborator Brad Hargraves about uh, about Aloysius when he was here, and he mentioned um, that it was kind of like a fortuitous experience in in his life um, that made him realize that he had the heart of an entrepreneur. Um, you went on to like start a bunch of, of, of businesses together, uh, but was this the was this the entrepreneurial moment for you, or were you always uh, did you always know that you were going to be starting things? 
So Al, yeah, Aloysius was a was a great learning experience. It was the first real true business that I had built and started, and we learned a ton about customer service and and sales uh, and inventory and supply management and e-commerce and all the, all these things. But I would say my entrepreneurial journey and inspiration really got started um, from from a younger age. Uh, growing up, I grew up in St. Louis, Missouri. Um, both my parents are small business owners and entrepreneurs themselves, and they're both very creative people. So um, I was fortunate, and my parents never, you know, had a, a preordained uh, career path for me. You know, you, you go be a lawyer, or go be a doctor, or you know, go into corporate America or anything like that. Um, they really encouraged my creativity and encouraged me kind of pursuing my own path. Um, but I was always very inspired by their entrepreneurial journeys. Uh, my mom is a graphic designer, has her own graphic design firm, and my dad runs an architectural signage business, and they make large-scale signage and big public art installations and kind of everything in between. And um, and they, you know, both had professional lives that were them making things and building things and, and running their own businesses. And I was just like the the freedom and the, the creativity of what they were doing and um, and looked up to them in, the, in that way. So, you know, I did a little bit of like freelance video production growing up in, in high school and, and some other small, I used to make and sell t-shirts and that kind of thing. But it was really once I got to college and got to spread my wings a little bit um, that Brad and I started Aloysius Properties. And, uh, you know, we just found an opportunity with the, the, the Yale University Library was um, renovating, was going undergoing renovation. They were selling off all these old card catalogs for nothing. and. Um, and we, we saw, hey, maybe we should get a U-Haul, go get one of these things and bring it back to our dorm and put it on eBay. And we did, and it ended up selling for 20 times the amount that we bought it for. Um, but, you know, we told the story. It was, we, 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 we positioned it well. We Rather than, rather than this just being an old piece of furniture that, uh, that was from a uh, renovation, this was a piece of history. You know, this had a story to it. This was decades and decades old in one of the, the world's most historic libraries. Um, and, uh, and, and, and that, the, the storytelling and the framing and the positioning and adding, um, some kind of human element to this just, you know, static piece of furniture, I think is what made us realize that, Hey, you know, building a business is, is a lot more than just the, the physical product. You know, it's the story that goes into it. It's the brand, it's the communication, it's the vibe. It's, it's, um, it's the whole kind of sum of the parts that really, that really makes it work. It's interesting you, you just said we we told the story um, because that kind of leads me to my next question. When you you started together, you and Brad and I think a couple of other co-founders started mm -hmm. um, pick teams, go cross campus, which mm -hmm. was uh, described as like a risk like social gaming um, platform, and you know you raised some money, but this is this is two thousand seven. Like this isn't quite the world of of college kids, you know, starting, you know, uh, or I mean, I guess maybe Facebook was around then, but it wasn't quite what we what mm -hmm. we know to be now. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I'm curious, like, what was the pitch for you raised? I think about three hundred seventy-five thousand um, dollars. What was the what was the pitch that you that you gave investors? Like, yeah, give us. Give a bunch of you know young guys who've been who've been selling card catalogs your money, and we're going to build a social gaming platform. Yeah, it was it was definitely early days. Um, you know when we so we ended up over the course of the, the life of the company, we ended up raising almost two million in venture capital. But that first uh, seed infusion was um, was from some people who were in the Yale alumni network. You know, both both Brad and myself and our other co-founders were involved in the the Yale Entrepreneurial Institute. And so the university is starting to realize that, oh, some of our biggest donors, some of our biggest um, uh, success stories beyond you know, presidents and CEOs are actually entrepreneurs. 
And so they thought, you know, we should actually start to cultivate more of an entrepreneurial community within within the under, undergrad uh, ecosystem. And so, you know, if I if I recall, you know, going to angel investors, um, this was still the early days of, of social media. Facebook was just a couple years old, you know, so it was still pretty nascent. Um, I think a, a lot of people didn't really understand what was possible with social media, but what they did understand was we were going to take real world college and sports rivalries. Um, you know, take take the rivalries between the Ivy League schools, take Duke versus UNC, Stanford versus Berkeley, right? These real world offline social motivators, not only in college rivalries, but also in sports rivalries at large. And these are very, very powerful social forces that just hadn't yet been captured online. And I think with the timing, we, we hit, it was, it was interesting because we were just starting to see Facebook start to take off. We were just starting to see um, social games. You know, Zynga was a little, a small, uh, small team doing social gaming. We were a small team doing social gaming. And actually, I remember um, we talked to Zynga early on about potential partnerships. And ultimately, we, we realized, you know, we decided, we, you know, it didn't make sense to work together at that time. Um, Zynga went on to become Zynga. You know, we ended up um, raising some money, building out a team, and a couple years later, ran out of cash and had to close up shop, and and you know, it was it was a failure. Um, so I always kind of look back and think like, if we had actually partnered with Zynga, you know, maybe it would have been a different story, you know. But but you know, fate, fate be as it may, um, you know, I think ultimately looking at the longer perspective, that company, Go Across Campus, and then eventually we changed the name to Pick Teams. That company had to fail. And we had to kind of learn something from that in order for us to move on and go on to kind of focus on bigger and better things, you know, things that move the world forward, like education and community and um, and, and everything else that we're building now. So it was, in some ways, looking back, it was fortuitous that that company ended up failing, even though um, at the time, you know, it was it was a pretty dire situation. So you raised $2 million, and, at, like, looking back, do you feel like, you were good stewards of that fund, like really responsible. Were you were you miserly stewards of other people's money, or uh, were you were you were you prudent, or were you wild? Uh, I would. I mean, as I guess as as prudent as, um, wow, what were like late teens and early twenty somethings, right? You know, could be being first time entrepreneurs. You know, we made a lot of first time founder mistakes. We had five co founders, which I don't recommend anyone having five co founders. <laughs> um, just too many cooks in the kitchen. Um, you know, we, uh, I was, I remember my senior year, I would, I would get up on every Friday, take the early Metro North in from New Haven, Connecticut into New York City. We had an office there and I would work a full day as a, you know, full-time adult entrepreneur. And then that evening, go back, go back to, to Yale and go back to being a college student. Um, so made a lot of first-time founder mistakes, you know, anything from like hiring, you know, the wrong people to spending the wrong, the wrong ways on marketing and whatnot. Um, I think we did the best we could. You know, um, it was a fantastic education. You know, our investors knew that they were investing in uh, a startup started by, you know, college students. Um, and, you know, some of the best companies are, are fit that model and, and a lot of failures fit that model. You know, so um, luckily we, we, we have good relationships with all of them and, and um, it was nothing ever, ever too catastrophic. You know, the recession didn't help, though. That, uh, that definitely hurt our, our uh, continued fundraising aspirations. Right. So, but like, I, I'm always interested in this, the, like when someone hits the wall, when someone says it's it's time to let it go. Yeah. Um, how did you really know that you had exhausted? I mean, you had, you had tens of thousands of 
of users on, mm -hmm. on the platform. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, these days that would be like awesome. People are like, wow, you have no revenue, you have tens of thousands of users? <laughs> wow, we want to give you even more money. Yeah. How did you, like, did you really, was it like, look, we've, we've talked to everyone and mm -hmm. there's just not another person out there to, to, to talk to? Like, how did you just say, look, I mean, this is the line, that's it? Mm -hmm. So uh, it was, it was m largely had to do uh, with the, the amount of money that we had in the bank account and just seeing that continue to go, to go down and down. Um, we have ended up taking a few bridge or bridge rounds just to have somebody in the bank to pay our team, pay our staff, and keep the lights on. Um, but ultimately, we were trying to raise another like a, a another round of capital after our first one in s kind of late starting late summer of 2008 into spring of 2009, which if you remember was the most terrible time, you know, to be raising money in the economy and everything was falling apart and. Um, you know, back in, if you would zoom back to 2007 into early 2008, a lot of the common wisdom was, oh, yeah, focus on product, focus on growing your user base, don't worry about revenue, revenue will come monetize once you're at scale, and all of that common wisdom. Um, and then if you zoom forward to now or the last couple of years, that kind of is the common wisdom again. The problem was is that when the recession was really hitting, a lot of investors were tightening up their belts, and a lot of investors were saying, all right, we want to see revenue, turn on monetization. The problem with our... Market was, you know, we were targeting college students, and college students just don't have a lot of disposable income. They're not young enough that they can ac have access to their parents' credit cards. They're not old enough such that they have disposable income from jobs and they're making money and they can spend more. Um, they're kind of in this strange situation. So our, you know, target uh, revenue model was advertising, but we weren't operating at enough scale to really have enough advertising to really make a difference. And so a lot of the investors that a year before had said, focus on scale, don't worry about revenue yet, now change their tune when the economic, you know, global macroeconomic situation looks different, and we're saying we want to see revenue, we want to see revenue. We weren't able to generate the kind of revenue that they wanted to see. Our money was dwindling. Um, you know, we tried to keep it together, but we eventually had to close up shop and, and basically ran out of cash. Was, you know? it, was it too soon? Like, like could, you, could, that, could that model be viable today, or was it just like, that model's just not viable? I think the, the the concept would look different today. It would be, you know, it would be something on mobile. It would be much more integrated with social platforms, you know, like like Instagram or maybe Snapchat, um, or or maybe Facebook. At the time, we actually we had this. Key, I remember we had this key decision back in two thousand seven, which was, okay, Facebook platform had just come out. There were, like, you know, exuberant poking games that were kind of the first uh, games on the Facebook platform. And we saw that and we thought. You know, the Facebook, the Facebook platform seems too limiting product-wise for us. So we're going to build our own destination site, and we're going to build our own platform and run our games off of that. And that's where the destination will be for, for users. Um, it, it turns out the Facebook platform became ubiquitous, and that probably would have been a good decision to, to build on top, of, on top of Facebook at the time. Again, you see the success that Zynga had. Um, so looking back, you know, it's always easy to have 20-20 hindsight, right, and to, and to look back and, and, and see things differently. Um, but, you know, at the time, we thought we were making the right decisions. I think the concept now, sports rivalries, team, team rivalries, college rivalries are still powerful social motivators that I think you can still tap into in order to motivate people to do things online. You know, the other interesting thing that I think Go Across Campus had that I still don't see a lot of um, innovation around is this idea of team-based competition. It's this idea that, you know, if I'm going to play a game or go online to do something competitive, 
it's a lot more boring if it's it's more boring if it's just me and I'm interacting and I'm, I'm competing against um, a bunch of strangers. But if I know that myself and my my fellow teammates are all Yankees fans, and the people competing against me are all Red Sox fans, I don't even have to know who you are. But I know that you are part of this competitive entity, and I know that me and my cronies are part of you know the entity that I believe in and that I support. That is incredibly powerful, right? Um, we, we were just, I, I just brought the Daybreaker team to, to the Daily Show um, uh, yesterday. And, um, and it was interesting because one of the things that was brought up was how, on the show, was how politics has become kind of like a, a, a competitive um, sport. The same way that people feel like, all right, this is my team and I'll stay with them to the end and I will be loyal to my team, whether they're doing great or they're doing poorly. Right, and no matter what, just because you are a competitive team, I'm going to hate you, and I'm going to be opposed to you, and everything you're doing is is against everything that I believe in. Right, and that's kind of how people treat politics as as they treat sports, which is incredibly damaging and detrimental to the societal health um, of the country. Right, you know, but it's just we have ingrained this idea of competitive sport uh, into our psyche so much that politics just seems like, all right, well, it's just two teams, right? They're competing. And you have your team, and I have my team, and let's go, right? Right. And they're te- oftentimes televised in the same way, and the media props them up the same way, and there's that that kind of charge that you get. So, yeah, it's, 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 it's a really interesting analogy. Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. This is Smart People Should Build Things, the Venture for America podcast. This is uh, the risk of making you blush, but we're on quasi-radio here, so it doesn't matter. Uh, Brad, you know, uh, who went on to start General Assembly with you, as we said, attributing, attributing uh, said this, and it was attributed uh, to your time at, at, uh, at Pick Team's Growcost Campus. Um, Matthew is one of the few, few truly innovative people I've met in my life. He has the unique ability to look beyond the framing that society puts around most objects and concepts and utilize that ability to be an awesome entrepreneur. Snarky, too. Okay? <laughs> Clearly, he means snarky as a compliment, but you know, where has, uh, where's the snarkiness, if, snarkiness, if you agree with the characterization, uh, been that asset that he speaks of? Where does that come from? Um, so I, I think what he's probably referring to is, is actually something that I, I, I think about a lot, which is, how do we create more mischief in the world? You know, how can we not look at the status quo and just be okay with that? Um, how can we see society for, for, you know, a set of constructs and a set of rules that people have, people just like us have put in place before? And just because something is structured in a certain way or that it has been done a certain way before or that's, that's you know, commonplace doesn't necessarily mean that that is right or that that is the best way for something to work. And so, you know, I, I, I studied sociology at Yale. This, is, this whole kind of con- all these kind of concepts are always fascinating to me. Um, but I try to look and see, okay, what what about the world doesn't seem like it makes sense? So what what could be done differently? How can we, you know, break some rules in a way that isn't going to hurt people, but might and allow people to see things from a wider perspective, see things from a uh, a different lens. Um, Steve Jobs had this really good quote that he said in a documentary, which was something to, I'm not going to repeat it exactly, but something to the effect of how he realized at some point that when you look around the world, that everything is kind of just made up 
by people that are no better than you and similar to you. And once you realize you can you can poke at it and you can kind of modify it and then everything is flexible if you if you want it to be, you just have to realize the fact that the rules and the constructs are just created by people. They're not set in stone by some higher power. Um, society is created by people and you are a person in that set of people. So why not play play around and why not break some rules? Um, you know, I'm not here to to create, you know, uh, damage. You know, I'm not, um, you know, a lot of people use this kind of disrupt, disrupt, disrupt. And that's not really my MO. I try to think, build, you know, let's create the new institutions for tomorrow. Let's let's break down some of the rules. But with the effort of building something new and bringing people together, not tearing people down and, and destroying things. Well, you went on to build to truly build something at General Assembly. I mean, it really sort of almost rang, helped helped ring in this this new era and in, in uh, you know this 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 latest tech boom. Um, but it, it, you already mentioned sort of the difficulty of of starting Go Across Campus with with five people, and and yet and you started Go Across you started uh, General Assembly with four. <laughs> so you know, so it shaved off one. Did, yeah. <laughs> is four the right number? Um, <laughs> you know, I think I think if, you know the total number of co-founder or the total number of, of founders. You know, ideal. Probably two or three. Um, but how, how did you, I mean? I sort of meant that a little bit cheeky, yeah, the yeah. right number. But like, I mean, how did you? How did you guys? How did you? How did you correct some of the errors you made last time? How did you make sure there was more unity in your founding team? Sure, sure. Um, I think one thing that's very important is um, is kind of keeping 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 to your lanes and really understanding what people are going to be working on and what what roles are and dividing up um, some you know parts of the business. In a way that makes sense. So, you know, I like to think about it. If, if you're a co-founder, ideally, every single co-founder is working on a set of things that fit three criteria. Uh, one is that you're working on something that you really enjoy and that you're passionate about. Two is that you're working on something that is crucial and mission critical to the business. And then three is that you're working on something that you're actually very good at and that you have the skills for, right? And if all of the co-founders if their scope of work hits all three of those criteria, then you're in a pretty good place. Where I think it gets messy is when you start to overlap too much and there's not a clear understanding of, all right, hey, this is my domain, this is your domain, this is your domain. Obviously, you're going to talk, you're going to discuss, you're going to pull each other in. But having some dom- domains and responsibility over those domains and trusting each other to say, look, you know this better than, than I do. Let me know when I can help. Let me know w- w- what you need. But ultimately, this is your domain. I'm going to let you run with it. Um, it's hard to do, especially in a small team, because everyone wants to be involved in everything, and everyone feels like they have an opinion. And when you're all Type A leaders, you kind of want to be invested and involved in everything. But it's really important to trust and to have some domain uh, separation so that you're not getting each other's hair all the time. And yeah, that must be incredibly difficult as as everything's exploding at at, at General Assembly to like kind of maintain that order and those responsibilities when just so much has to be done. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't know if there's a question there. <laughs> I mean, now, so now, just, you know, sure. I'm just throwing that out there. Sure. I mean, now, generally, you know, when, when we were a small team, you know, it was, it, it was, it was, it was, I mean, still tricky. There's just new, new problems. Um, it's funny, though, as you go through a company, you know, I've never, General Assembly is the first company I've built from four individuals to now 500 plus team members around the world, you know, in 15 cities now across four continents. Um, and it's just been wild and incredible and amazing educational and humbling experience, you know, to go through it all and just to see the company at every stage along the way. Um, but I think, you know, the most important thing that I can I can really think of with regards to the team and, and, and roles is this piece of advice that I got early on, which is hire people 
who are smarter and better than you at particular things. So if you're bringing on team members who are better than you at particular things, you, the quality of your employee of your employees and the, the quality of your team members is always going to be going up. And now I can you know walk around and look around at the team and realize, wow, this person is doing their job way better than I could do if I were to try to step in and do their job for them. And this person over here is doing their work way better than I could do. Um, and that's a very humbling thing as a co-founder to realize like, maybe you guys don't need me. I don't know, you know? Um, and granted, you know, every, you know, every, everyone's important and, and, and there's a, a very real, real role for the co-founders to play, of course. But just to see so much talent in focused areas around the company um, makes you realize that a successful, a successful team is not one where the co-founders are at the top of some anthill looking over their kingdom. You know, that's a vain and um, approach and that's hubris. And ultimately, that's going to mean that you're, you know, a giant among among peons. Right. Instead, you want to be ideally as a co-founder, you want to be humbled by the talent on your team. And if you surround yourself with people who are smarter than you, more capable than you at all these particular areas, then you've built a team of giants, which is the, the key to success in the long run, I think. One, I mean, one more question about just getting things right off yeah. the, at, the, at the beginning at, at, uh, at GA, mm -hmm. which is, again, in this piece that I, maybe I'm not sure if I referenced it or not, you published this great piece on failure on, on your LinkedIn page. Um, and you know you notice that at Go, Go Cross Campus, you guys suffered from short-term thinking when raising capital. Mm -hmm. um, was that all parties? Was that your investor? Was that your team? Um, you know, what did you do differently that, that, that General Assembly, so the General Assembly didn't suffer from this kind of sure. short-term thinking? So raising, I mean, raising more money usually takes more work than raising less money. Um, there are who, there are people who would argue otherwise, but generally speaking, you know, that's the case, I think. Um, you have to convince more investors to give you more money because your vision is bigger. With Go Cross Campus, we were, uh, in the final stretch, final like year or so of our company, we were in this kind of constant, we're, like, we're always raising a little bit like all right we'll get we'll get a little bit of money in here and we'll get a little bit of money in there we'll get a little bit of money in there and we're just always raising little pieces and what it meant was that we were always fundraising so it was distracting us from being able to actually focus on the business you know you talk to any founder and they'll all if they've if they've ever done fundraising and they'll all tell you that once the fundraising is done they just have this sigh of relief because they're like all right finally I can go back to focusing on the product and on the business and I'm not out trying to pitch other people that what I'm doing matters but I can actually go back to my team and work with my team and actually build the something that matters, you know. And so with General Assembly, you know, we were able to raise. We've raised yeah four rounds now, a series A, B, C, and D. And every time we've raised enough money to say, like, all right, we're done with fundraising. We now have enough cash in the bank where we can grow and we can build. Um, the, ni the other nice thing about General Assembly is that it's a real business. We have real revenue coming in. Um, you know, we create educational programs for companies for individuals we offer we offer courses and workshops and programs that actually improve people's lives and allow them to make progress in their careers and they're better off um, than where they began and they're willing to spend money to become better off and to receive that sort of personal and professional transformation that they under that they go through with general assembly so the business economics are very real whereas with go across campus and with um sorry specifically with go across campus it was still we never really had a true revenue model. It was still this, okay, well, we're gonna wait till we get a lot of users and then hopefully we'll figure out ads or charging users or something down the line. And so since then, that's been something, you know, building a true strong business has been something that's important to me. Um, like get the fundamentals right, because if you get the fundamentals right early on, 
the capital that you raise just helps to accelerate that. Um, but when economic times are are um, are not as good, you know, then you still have money coming, you still have revenue coming in, you still have a business that you can build, and you're not completely beholden to outside sources of venture capital um, when when the belts get tightened. So, in terms of you know, you guys divvying up responsibilities at the at the beginning. Mm-hmm. I mean, now you're now you're in charge of of. Uh, of business development was that was that always the case as, as your as your job evolved as as uh, as the company's grown? Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, I I've tried to over the over the course of General Assembly over the life of the last you know of the company over the last five plus years, I've tried to always think again around those three areas. What am I really passionate about? Because what I'm really passionate about doing is is what I'm going to be um, you know put my heart and soul into. Uh, what does the company really need from me right now? I don't want to be working on something that doesn't matter. And then three, what actually, what, what am I good at? What can I bring real expertise and real skills at to the table that, you know, I can be better at than anyone else, right? And so over the years, it's meant a number of different things. You know, when we first started General Assembly, it meant a lot of community building. It meant a lot of bringing our inaugural members, selecting and curating and, and cultivating our inaugural membership into the community back when we were doing co-working back in 2011. Um, and then it was starting to produce events and start to, you know, organize hackathons and work with partners to bring in speakers and um, and conferences and hackathons and whatnot. And then it became into it turned into partnerships and business development. And then it became you know starting our enterprise business, which was um, really very experimental earlier early on. And now our enterprise business makes up a a, a, a good chunk of um, of the business as a whole. And it's a whole big team now, you know and um, I'm no longer involved in the enterprise team day to day, but it continues to thrive and it continues to go on. Um, and then, so now, you know, I spend a lot of my time kind of focused on three areas of general assembly. Uh, one is working with our marketing team on big partnerships and bringing in um, partners and interesting people, um, and interesting opportunities to the table, so we can grow our audience um, and expand the kind of people that we touch. Uh, number two is I spend a lot of time um, supporting and growing our social impact team. So about a year and a half ago, almost two years ago now, we actually started a scholarship program um, called Opportunity Fund, which was um, also initially an experiment, but has now uh, raised an, uh, quite a bit of a philanthropic capital, all of which we are putting into scholarships for underrepresented groups and lower-income individuals. So we now have scholarships, full-ride full, full ride scholarships that we can provide uh, for military veterans, for individuals from low-income backgrounds, um, for individuals from underrepresented groups, um, and, and and other other um, you know disadvantaged populations, that we can bring them into general assembly. We match one for one every single scholarship that we raise outside capital for, um, which is a pretty pretty cool thing. I think it's a pretty yeah, it's pretty awesome. um, a noble thing. And so what that means is that we can really start to diversify our our students and sort of really bring in people into the tech world and give them the opportunity to pursue. Uh, a future in the digital economy and give them the opportunity to pursue their passions no matter what their economic background is. You know, so that anyone who's willing to work hard and follow their passions can have a chance pursuing, you know, work they love. So that's a big area of passion for mine. And then the third area that I focus on is um, supporting our alumni community and really think about how do we build General Assembly, specifically our alumni and their engagement with us and with each other over the long haul so that decades from now, you know, the General Assembly alumni community is a powerful force in the world is a great connected community supporting each other, helping each other, um, you know, hopefully always having access to General Assembly, maybe coming to take a class, maybe tapping into our, our hiring network, maybe maybe hiring 
uh, grads out of a course they took 10 years ago, you know, that's maybe been revamped or something. So those are kind of the three areas of focus I spent a lot of my time on. <clears throat> so, I, you know, when I do my research for the show, it's all these like, you know, tremendous brand names that, that you guys have, you know, the GAS partnerships with and, and some of them are really interesting and innovative, encourage people to go out there and, and, and check it out. But like, was there, was there a moment where, I, I don't know who the name might be, but where, where you, where you were like, wow, we got a, we had a partnership with, with them and, and that is really legitimizing. Like who was the first big fish you guys landed mm -hmm. and was it just like a, wow, we're for real now? Wow. Um, yeah, it's a good question. I mean, er, one of our earliest, earliest partners was the city of New York, the Economic Development Corporation, um, which is which is part of the New York City government. And they actually gave us a grant very early on, before we, right before we launched, to help us get started. And I remember it was just such a, a powerful validating force. You know, this is 2010 when we were, fin you know, finishing construction, starting to build the community. And then we actually launched our, our campus in New York in, in early 2011. But that was a pretty powerful, you know, validation for us. It's like, wow, you know, here we are. I'd, I'd literally just, I'd moved to New York a, well, a year and a half before. I'd moved to New York from out of college. First time living in New York in summer of 2009. And then just a little over a year later, I have the city of New York giving me, me and my co-founders a grant to start this community hub and educational campus to support entrepreneurship and the future startups of New York City, which is like, wow, mm -hmm. doing something right. Like, okay, you know, the city believes in us. Let's go. You know, it was still early days then. Um, another another great partner that we had early on, which was which was very, you know, uh, validating for us was our first enterprise education um, client uh, was General Electric. And um, we always really liked in the state of, okay, General Electric and General Assembly, like surely they should work together. Yeah, that makes <laughs> sense. Um, general, general Dynamics, General Motors, General yeah, Mills. Yeah, get them all, yeah. you know. <laughs> um, and I remember, I remember it was, it was fun because early on, you know, we got to really be creative and innovative with, all right, we're going to rethink enterprise education. You know, corporate training typically sucks, you know, as an experience and it's kind of lost in the, in the you know, in the dark ages somewhere. And so we thought, all right, how can we move um, education for big companies, you know, people within working in, in big Fortune 500, they're people too, you know, they're hungry, they're interested, you know, they want to learn, they want to get better at their jobs, just as our, you know, um, just as our kind of consumer uh, students are. And so I remember when we worked with General Electric, we were building out this week-long program for them. And I decided, okay, Thursday evening, we're going to have a special surprise. They didn't know, and these are a whole bunch of General, uh, General Electric executives from all over the world who were in town spending their week with us at General Assembly. And so Thursday afternoon, after our, our kind of formal classroom programs are done, we take them outside and out parked on Broadway at 21st and Broadway, right outside of our, our campus, right in the middle of Flatiron uh, District in, in Manhattan, there's a yellow school bus. And I'd hired a yellow school bus to take them from the General Assembly campus, the school that they were going to. They get on the school bus and like, wow, I haven't been on a school bus in decades, <laughs> you know, but they get on the school bus and we drive them downtown um, where was the restaurant? To a restaurant that actually does not exist anymore. A very New York thing. <laughs> um, but it was this cool, really vibey, <clears throat> like underground restaurant. And we took them there for like a kind of celebratory um, dinner, you know, because they're almost done with the week. And it was really just nice to spend time with them and, um, and get them to kind of open up as people, uh, not just as executives with each other and with us. And it was a nice community building time. And then at the end of the night, then they get back in the school bus and we took them back up to their hotel, you know. So th th those sort of things was just, I remember that was a, like a surreal but beautiful moment to think, wow, you know, one of the biggest 
companies in the world, General Electric, here mm-hmm. they are spending time with us, working with us, and we get to put them all in a yellow school bus <laughs> and kind of like, you know, create an experience that we think is going to be meaningful, you know. And I guarantee that no other, you know, corporate training provider, you know, put their their executive client in a yellow school bus. And they're, of course, delighted by it, right? Totally. And they're just like, wow, this is so fun. And, like, it makes us – it just, you know, it brings brings a humanity into – into a space that might not otherwise happen, you sure. know, which is something, which is a big thing that we think we've thought a lot about at General Assembly. You know, it's not just about the utility and it's not just about the skills that we can give people, you know, teaching people how to code or giving them, turning them into UX professionals, but how can we also inspire them? How can we also give them the opportunity to dream big, build the future, think about their, their careers, not just the next promotion or their next leveling up, but like, who do they want to become? You know what's their passion? What's their purpose in life? And how can we help them find that, and then and then accelerate them down that path? You know, we don't have a, a prescribed path for all of our students and all of our partners. We want to help them find that. We want to give them the tools, the inspiration, and the opportunity to to pursue whatever it is that they that they love, whatever their passion is. Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. This is Smart People Should Build Things, the Venture for America podcast. Andrew Yang, the VFA founder, is he's fond of talking about how like founders shape companies, but companies also shape founders. Um, and I think that's a really interesting you know, mm-hmm. idea. Um you know, uh, how has how has how has General Assembly changed the 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 person you are, the manager or the person you are? General Assembly has definitely made me. It is it has been the most educational experience that I've had in my life. I mean, Yale was very educational. This is educational in a whole different way. It's been you know five plus years of of really immersive. Um, experiential training and, and what it's like to build a company and what it's like to grow a team. I think specifically, um, it has made me realize that any company that I start in the future, I want to really have an impact in the world. I want to really be something that moves people forward, that moves the world forward. You know, I'm not interested in building companies that are just out to make money or just out to, to you know, turn a buck. Um, we have limited time on this earth. We have, you know, only so much bandwidth, only so much resource, only so many resources. So, you know, it is just, it, it has given me this, this real sense of purpose that, okay, you know, General Assembly, I've seen General Assembly transform people's lives. You know, I mean, we have, we've served hundreds of thousands of students now. Um, we have tens of thousands of alumni who've taken one of our long form or full-time courses. And there's just so many stories of personal transformation and and stories of how General Assembly has fundamentally impacted people's lives for the better. And that's just been so rewarding, you know? And I realized that being an entrepreneur, the really truly rewarding parts of it are about seeing other people thrive, whether it's team members, whether it's your customers or clients, whether it's your students. Um, The joy is in that. The joy is in moving the world forward and empowering other people and seeing other people thrive and become better people. The joy is not in an exit. The joy is not in making a lot of money. And so I think it's really made a big impact on me and just giving, giving me that deep, deep sense of purpose of anything that I do for my career moving forward now, I want to be toward um, toward like a destination of 
positive world impact and on improving people's lives and on making a difference in the world because otherwise you know i'll be wasting my time and 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 you know bandwidth on this planet you're obviously still passionate about general assembly you're still you know there uh you know committing your time to it but you know you you've you've managed to to take on a variety of, of other projects, and the, I guess the highest profile of which is, is Daybreaker. Um, like, what was the impulse that led you to Daybreaker? I guess as a concept, but also what what made you feel like, hey, I can I can take on building another community. In a very you know, just a seems to be like a lot of time and effort would have to go into building a, a separate business with GA still growing and being so exciting. Like, like what what was the thought process both in starting the company? Um, as a concept, but also in terms of like your budget of time. Sure, sure, it's definitely a good question. Um, you know, I, I would definitely not have been able to start Daybreaker earlier on in GA's history. Uh, you know, now General Assembly is, uh, yeah, I mean, we, it's, it's thriving. We have a fantastic team. We have a lot of people involved. Um, Daybreaker really began as a social experiment, as an as an art project. Um, it was not, I, uh, you know, I, when we started it. We didn't intend it to be another startup or be a company. Um, was it supposed to be a one and done? Like- it was. It was supposed to be. It was supposed to be an experiment. It was supposed to be an event. It was supposed to be an experience um, and a way to try something new. So, you know, it began. It was. It was. Um, I, you know, I, I was working on General Assembly full time, and um, I came to my friend Rada. Uh, who's my Daybreaker co-founder, you know, who's also been a serial entrepreneur and, and a longtime community builder and, and lover of experiences. And both of us have done a lot of event production and experience design over the years, so it's always been a passion. Um, and I was talking about this idea about how, you know, I'd kind of grown frustrated. Together, we talked about how, how we'd grown frustrated with a lot of traditional nightlife and entertainment in New York and how um, it seemed like, you know, this idea of, of, you know, music and entertainment and dancing were so necessarily attributed and associated with drugs and alcohol and late nights and self-destructive behavior and dark energy and kind of dirty nightclubs and all this kind of negative stuff. And we thought, well, Well, that doesn't have to be the case. Um, Both both of us were, you know, have been longtime uh, burners. We've been going to Burning Man for, I think, this will be my fifth year consecutive in a row. And so, you know, that festival in particular and the experience there and the kind of massive levels of creativity and of openness and of generosity and of um, and of positivity that you get to experience out there were powerful in just showing, you know, both of us, I think, what's what people are capable of and how people are capable of interacting. And so we're having this conversation and we thought, well, what if why does like a great, you know, dance party have, have to happen just at night? What if we could create the most positive, the most energetic, the most social and the most healthy way to start your day? rather than the way to end your night. And we thought, well, if we're going to create the, the best possible way to start your day um, with the dance party, we don't want to serve any alcohol because you're going to work afterwards. So you don't know nobody wants to drink. Instead, we'll serve coffee and we'll serve juice and we'll serve smoothies and coconut water and green juice. And, and, and so you're only putting healthy, good things in your body. And really, we realized wait, we could actually do this in such a way that marries the world of health and wellness. So you have 21st century of health and wellness, which is getting a lot of interest, especially from young people wanting to live better lives. They're more conscious about what they put in their bodies. They're more conscious about how they, they treat themselves. And then this other world of um, this growing world of, of experiential entertainment and of people realizing, young people, especially people realizing that experiences are the new luxuries. You know, we want, we want experiences more than we want stuff. 
you know, more than we want possessions. And so that, okay, what if we can create an incredibly powerful and artistic and transformative experience in the morning so that it energizes you and starts off your day in the best way possible. And then you go to work and you feel totally awake and totally alive. It's more fun than going to the gym. It's still a workout, but it's also social and artistic and creative and, and allows you to self-express and allows you to kind of like check in with yourself and, and almost kind of be a kid again. It like removes the rules and removes the status quo. It allows you to kind of have a little bit of mischief right in the morning. And then you're, you're come out and you're like, oh, I feel, I feel just so much more light and just more joyful and I've, I'm awake and now I'm going to bring that energy and that positivity and that creativity into, into my day. You know? And so we did the first one back in December of 2013. Again, it was a total experiment. We just said, let's just do one of these and see what happens. So we did one. We invited our friends. 180 people bought tickets and showed up at 6.30 in the morning. Um, and it was just the most magical, amazing, positive experience. And nobody was drunk. Nobody, there was no alcohol. And it was over um, like 8.30 or 9.00. And everyone came out and it was daylight and everyone went off to work and we just were getting tons and tons of positive feedback and reviews and people said they had the best day and they felt so alive and so happy. And so we thought, all right, well, let's do another one. Let's do one in a couple months. We did another one. We had even more people come. We did a different venue, different DJs. You know, we, have, we always have live music and performers and musicians and dancers. And it's, it's always this kind of surprising. It's, it's part dance party, part you know, fitness experience and part immersive theater sort of thing. And so we just kept iterating on it. And over time, the events became bigger and bigger and bigger. And we realized, hey, we actually have something real here. This is a community. This is a brand. This is a powerful experience for people. And so it became a very large side project for both of us. And um, we started to, you know, expand the team, bring people on. Um, I got some apprentices, some interns, and started to grow the team. And so now fast forward to today, um, we have several full-time team members. We have a bunch of part-time team members, producers in uh, over 10 cities around the, around the world who are now producing Daybreaker events under, um, under the Daybreaker organization. And it's just been this, this experiment-turned-movement um, that's been, it's been pretty incredible. I, I hate to date myself with a reference here, but it almost yeah. sounds like Field of Dreams there. Like, you know, it's kind of like <laughs> people just started lining up and if showing you build up. It, and they will come. Yeah. yeah. The, uh, <laughs> but I mean, it's interesting. You talk about like the kind of this, this force of darkness in, uh, you know, and, and, and certainly an exclusionary force in, mm -hmm. in, uh, in New York nightlife mm -hmm. and the like. I mean, I'm, I'm just, I'm too stubborn a person to wait in line for anything. I'm just yeah. like, I, I don't, I don't need this. Yeah. Um, but I mean, how do you, how do you, when you create a community, there's also a loss of control, right? Like you mm -hmm. bring all these, and they own the community, and, and mm -hmm. these people are coming back because mm -hmm. because they feel that sense of ownership. But mm -hmm. how do you how do you continuously have the imprint and make sure you keep those forces of darkness at bay? Yeah, so uh, it's, it's, it's probably a bunch of things there. I think one, the 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 focus on no alcohol, I think, is a big one because it ensures that people are coming there for the right reasons. You know, it's also really early in the morning and it, you have to buy a ticket. So there's a few filters. So if you buy a ticket, you, you wake up really early, you put on your workout gear, you're, a lot of people come in costume. Um, so a lot of creativity. Phenomenal pictures on you the know. Instagram uh, Oh, thank you. Thank you. Yeah. yeah. Um, it's definitely a photogenic experience. Um, but you come and it's like, okay, if you're waking up this early, you've bought your ticket and you're not there to drink, then surely you're there for like, something pretty awesome, you know? Um, and a lot of a lot of the way it spreads is, is really word of mouth, you know. So that that's one. Um, the other is we we try to we try to interact with our community a lot, you know. And there, it's this realization that the community can only be guided and kind of pushed a little bit, you know, by us. But ultimately, the community is the sum of the parts. The community is the people, the people who feel drawn to it. And so if we can create an experience where the music 
and the words and the run of show and the magic is something that is attractive to the kind of people that we want, then we, you know, continue doing that. And we listen too. if, you know, people say like, Hey, you know, this part really like bothered me or that, you know, this part really, I just didn't, wasn't feeling. We'll listen to our community and adjust and adapt, you know, while still trying to keep a, a creative vision. Um, a few other, you know, considerations that we have around the, on, on, on building a strong community are, you know, this idea of, um, of giving karma in order to get karma. So, and I've done this throughout my professional life, you know, both with General Assembly and Daybreaker and everything as much as I can. Um, just try to be as useful as possible, not asking for things in return. So if any time that I can make an introduction to two people who should meet each other and who are interested, I'll do so. Any time that I can give advice or offer offer insight into something, if someone's asking me about it, a particular thing that I have some expertise expertise in, I'm happy to do that. I, I just try to be as helpful professionally in terms of my my you know, network and my personal community as possible. And ultimately what that means is that then, you know, when I go on, on Facebook or something and say, Hey, we need a, we need a, a, a trombonist for next week's event. <laughs> How know, many times have I gone on Facebook and said <laughs> that? Yeah. The, actually, so the very first daybreaker, like the night before, I think our, our, our trumpet player dropped out or something. We needed another one. So I went on and said, Hey, I really need a, a trumpet player, you know, and I got all these posts within like hours, you know, people recommending, you know, people. So that sort of thing, like that serendipity is very much a part of, of community building. You know, when you're good to people, when you're good to community and you don't ask for anything in return, um, when you do need something, you know, people come out in droves. Are you able to, I mean, now Daybreaker's in many different cities and it's many different yep. events. I signed up for the list. I, okay, I, I, cool. I was tempted to go to, to the, you now have an evening event uh, every once in a while, I think. We I, do, I yeah. invited to one on, on Friday. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, it was uh, Thursday. It was, our, it was our first evening experience. Thursday, so, there you go. So, okay. You know, the idea is, okay, well, if, if Daybreaker's kind of reimagine the morning, then Dusk, which is our evening experience now, which we're going to start to take to other cities, you know, the intention there is to kind of take back happy hour and to, oh, okay. to create an experience after work in the evenings that, again, is still alcohol-free, but that is transformative and magic and positive and social and, you know, all of the kind of the daybreaker things. Right. Um, but, but allowing you to then go off and, and not stay out super late, but still have an amazing time and, and a conscious experience afterwards. Right. It's perfect for a guy yeah. like me who goes to bed at 930. <laughs> the, the, uh, are you still able to, like, do, do you still try and go to these, as many events as you can? I mean, so, I, there's, yeah, so there's so in, many events. We're in we're in now over ten cities around the around the world. Um, so I can't go to all the ones that are not in New York unless I'm I'm traveling in there. And you know, we have good teams in, in all the cities. I go to all of our events in New York, and I'm obviously very involved in all of them. Um, and now you know it's it's a lot of it comes down to time management, and, and obviously you know that's something I can I can always be getting better at. You know I think most people can, um, but I really try to you know, manage my time. So I'm still spending a lot of time on General Assembly and I'm very, very involved in there and a lot of the projects and areas that I mentioned. But I'm also spending, um, you know, pretty significant amount of time building uh, building Daybreaker and growing the team and supporting a whole bunch of different um, aspects to the company there. And, you know, I kind of get my, my startup, my early stage startup fix, um, building Daybreaker, which is a small team and scrappy and, and very entrepreneurial and very young and, and still building a lot of the pieces. Um, but then also, you know, get to, to do that, but then also get to work on general assembly and operate at scale and, you know, work on things that are, again, transforming people's lives. You know, I think I, I do in the joy, if you zoom out a little bit, both general assembly and daybreaker are meaningful communities that matter to people that are very values driven, that are both about personal transformation, that are both about moving people's lives forward and allowing them to become better versions of themselves through, the creation of meaningful experiences with general assembly those are educational experiences with daybreaker those are you know immersive uh music and dance experiences but 
either way, people have a strong affinity to these experiences and to each other um, in the community of people who participate. And it's just so rewarding to see how much people love both. And you're talking with such visible excitement mm-hmm. about, about about Daybreaker as like a movement and doing something meaningful. Mm-hmm. But is there still, a, is there still, are there still defined business schools behind that? Are there oh, still absolutely. revenue targets? Absolutely. And, you know? I mean, we're, we, we see Daybreaker as first and foremost a community and is a, you know, it's a, it's a lifestyle as well. Um, and we're working on aspects um, to, to do that as well. We're launching apparel soon. Um, we're launching a, a content channel soon, um, which will have all sorts of fun ways to kind of live the Daybreaker lifestyle um, every single day. Uh, you know, but but you know, we're also building it in a sustainable way, and we want we haven't taken a, a dime of outside funding. Um, you know, it's entirely it's entirely you know grown through through um, you know ticket sales and revenue. You know, we don't we don't charge. Uh, there's no alcohol. You know, every once you're inside, all the the healthy beverages and the smoothies and the salads and snacks and everything that's all free. So you know, our the the margins are different, right? You know, a lot if you look at a nightclub or something, they're making a ticket price from a, or a concert, a ticket price from a door, also making alcohol sales. We don't get any alcohol sales. It's not a revenue driver. Um, but we are still building this as a sustainable business. You know, we want, this, we want Daybreaker to be around really in the long term and for this to be a movement that exists all over the world and for this to be a, you know, massive global community of people who have woken up, you know, literally and figuratively and want to live life differently and with more positivity, with more creativity and more mindfulness, you know, around the world. And that, and that needs to be done you know, in a sustainable uh, way that where the finances make sense, as well as the, you know how how we interact with the people, making sense. It, I mean, it sounds like a ton of fun, and I, I'd, I'd really actually like to like to attend one when when my schedule allows. Talk about sure. talk, we're talking about time crunches, sure. uh, and indeed we have a time crunch now. And I, I've got a half dozen questions for you, so we'll we'll have to have you back sometime sometime in the future when uh, when the daybreaker story continues to uh, to evolve and develop. But thanks so much for for being here, Matt. It was really interesting, and um, and good luck with everything. Sure, thank you. Good, good to be here. Hopefully we'll, we'll see you at Daybreaker soon. a time of renewal so why not refresh your home with a little help from blinds.com we make getting custom window treatments a minor project with major impact choose from premium blinds shades and shutters we even have options for your patio too Blinds.com invented a better way to shop for custom window treatments. There's no pushy salespeople in your home or inflated showroom prices. Our design experts can help you find the perfect window treatments on your schedule. We'll even send free samples directly to you. Plus, we can handle the measuring and installation for you. Unlimited window treatments installed for just one low cost. And with Blinds.com, you'll always get transparent pricing. No hidden fees. Our free shipping and 100% satisfaction guarantee can put the spring back into your step. And into your home, too. Shop Blinds.com right now and save up to 45%. Up to 45% off for a limited time at Blinds.com. Blinds.com. Rules and restrictions may apply.